0: You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning we're looking at chapter 13 and verse 26. You will find this on page 922 of the Pew Bible. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 43 of chapter 13. Hear the word of God. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Well, if you have been following along, most of you have, you'll know that Paul and Barnabas are in Pisidian Antioch situated in the heart of Asia Minor. And it is the Sabbath day. And the two men are in the local synagogue. And after the reading of scripture, Paul is invited to offer a word of exhortation. And he begins his sermon by rehearsing the great redemptive events of Israel's history. And in so doing, he highlighted for his hearers three important themes. First, last week, you'll remember, he highlighted the doctrine of election, which is taught everywhere in the Bible. Just as God chose the fathers, so he chooses every Christian. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And that's the basis of our salvation. It's not found in ourselves. It's found in God. He chose us out of a world of darkness and translated us to the kingdom of light. That's number one. Number two, Paul referred to God's redemptive activity at the Exodus. Just as he delivered Israel from bondage, so he delivers us from the slavery of sin. It's not something we did. It's not something we could do. It's something God did through Jesus Christ. As he brought the Jews into the promised land, so he promises to bring us to heaven. That's number two. And then third, Paul mentioned the great theme of the promised king. Just as God raised up David for Israel, so he exalted Jesus Christ for the church. And all of this simply proves that Yahweh is the true and faithful covenant-keeping God. He means what he says. No matter what the world scoffs at, he fulfills his word and he keeps his promise. And when we read something in the word of God, we can take it to the bank. Paul's sermon to this point serves as a backdrop to the work of the Savior. Because the Christian religion, you'll remember, is firmly rooted in history. It's not just theoretical. It's not just abstract. There is historical evidence and credible testimony undergirding our faith. We're told in Scripture that every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's how God set it up. And that's precisely what God did. Only he went far and above what's required. Paul tells us that the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And we have not one, but we have four distinct gospels that detail the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Think, too, of all the prophets whose detailed predictions came true hundreds and even thousands of years beforehand. No other religion has the historicity and the transparency of the Christian faith. So why would we adopt anything less as a basis for our eternal destiny? My friends, the stakes are extremely high. It's a matter of life and death. I hope that's why you've gathered, that's why I'm here. For reasons known only to him, God has made it so that decisions made here affect life hereafter. And some think that's absolutely absurd. Come on. Really? Everlasting punishment based upon a decision in time? Well, I don't think Jesus was given to exaggeration, and this is what he told us. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So having laid the foundation, the apostle Paul then proclaims the heart of the gospel. He says it is the message of this salvation that he's conveying to Jews and God fearers. And right off the bat, the teaching shows us something about the universality of the gospel. In other words, God's covenant promises and redeeming mercy are not simply for the Jews. Paul makes it plain that it's intended for believing Gentiles as well. All people, regardless of gender or race or age, have need of the Savior. We read in 1 John 5 that the whole world lies in sin. So every one of us has a vested interest in this. And that's why the gospel is offered to everyone and anyone in the world. And there is no category of people that is excluded from the gracious offer, none. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And whoever believes in Christ will receive eternal life and abiding peace And these terms of the gospel are offered publicly, like right now, personally to you and you and you, and intelligibly. They're public since Jesus told the church to make disciples of all nations, proclaim it. They're personal because we are to implore sinners to embrace Christ, not just give an academic lecture, implore you. And they're intelligible so that anyone can understand the terms of salvation. There is a particular, identifiable, understandable revelation. We have public documents, the Holy Scriptures, to which any one of us can refer. And in our day, the New Age religions are exerting a powerful influence. I don't know if you know that. Most of you, probably all of you do. The new age religions are exerting a powerful influence. They teach that truth is merely relative and historically conditioned. It depends on when you live, what is true. There are no moral absolutes. There are no religious dogmas. There is no spiritual exclusivity. They claim that no one faith is adequate. No single religion has a monopoly on the truth. In fact, they say all religions contain a kernel of truth, so they all contribute to our salvation. And this New Age thinking mingles various beliefs. It's very difficult to clearly define what this actually is. At the end of the day, it's based largely on feelings and mystical experiences. Nothing is classified as right and wrong. Nothing is considered true or false. It's just thought to be pleasing or offensive. There is no central authority. Every individual expression of religion is different. And it's all intuitive and completely unintelligible. Not so Christianity. We have in sacred scripture a clear, unmistakable message of salvation. And this message is good news. And most important are two significant elements that Paul mentions. First, the death of Christ, by whom we receive the forgiveness of sins. Second, the resurrection of Christ, by whom we receive the gift of eternal life. Those two. And in his sermon, Paul goes into great detail about these things. The crucifixion of Jesus. And what's surprising to me is that the Jews and the leaders did not recognize Christ when he came. Surprising, I say, because they didn't understand the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Every single Saturday, they read the prophets. For centuries, God had been preparing them for the coming Messiah. The original promise in Genesis 3, The Pledge to Abraham, the predictions of by Moses, the prophecies of Isaiah and Daniel and Malachi. The prophetic utterances were clear, but the Jews didn't understand them. And the question is, why? Why didn't they understand them? It wasn't an intellectual problem. They were clear. It was a moral and spiritual problem. They needed the new birth. And so John tells us he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Rather, they condemned Jesus, though he was completely innocent. And they persuaded Pilate to crucify him, though he didn't do anything worthy of death. And all of this was ordained by God and predicted by the prophets long before. How could they not know him? How could they not have believed in him? And the answer is that their hearts were hard and their eyes were blind, their ears were stopped up and their deeds were evil. They were unregenerate. And their rejection of Jesus proves the need for the new birth. Our standards say that by nature, you and I, all of us, are utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God. That's how we come into this world. Our natural tendency is to rebel and to murmur and to complain and to desire the world. And we will believe only if the Spirit of God replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That's the sad news. But the good news is he's willing to do it. And as the final step in Christ's humiliation, they laid his body in a tomb after he had endured the painful and shameful and cursed death of the cross. He was publicly executed like a criminal and then hidden out of their sight. Get rid of him. And the high priest Caiaphas had made this statement. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He had no idea what he was saying. He was prophesying about the atoning death of Jesus. Because you see, God had said at the beginning, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam ate, and we all died. That first sin plunged us into misery. And so Paul, reflecting on that, says this. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. The wages of sin is death. We sinned. Somebody's got to die. Somebody has to die. Justice is impartial, it will not relinquish its demand to be satisfied, and we're taught that every sin, even the least, deserves his wrath and curse. So as the sinner stands at the bar of justice, the law indicts him for crimes against heaven. He's undeserving, he is ill-deserving, he's earned the penalty of death. The world comes along and says, why do good things happen? or Why do bad things happen to good people? They can't figure it out. The Bible comes along. Why do good things happen to such wicked people? The only reason that the world continues today is that God desires to save a remnant. But the grand fruit of Christ's vicarious death, we're told, is the forgiveness of sins. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that's what we need. Because without that, we are hopelessly condemned. Don't you see there is no other way to be forgiven than through the blood of Jesus. If we believe in his name, just believe in his name then God will give us a free and full pardon. His blood is so potent that it will wash away even the greatest of sins. Those men who crucified him, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I have every reason to believe that they were forgiven. This is the foundation of all other blessings that we receive in Christ. The forgiveness of sins. This is what paves the way for acceptance with God. For those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us, there is no condemnation. You can stand there in his presence without fear. Because if sin is pardoned, then justice can do no more. Blessed is the one, says David, whose transgression is forgiven. But you see, that's only half the equation. There's something more of equal importance, and in his sermon, Paul highlights the all-important resurrection of Christ. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And this is a great and indispensable truth. It's one of the central pillars of our salvation. The whole fabric of the gospel depends on this doctrine, that Jesus rose from the tomb. We hear that so often, that I am tempted to take it for granted. He rose from the dead. Death couldn't hold him. He conquered the grave. For our sins, he was crucified. For our debt, he was laid in a borrowed sepulcher. And had he remained there, we'd have no reason to think that our debt was paid. If he's still in the grave, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But with eschatological power, the spirit resurrected that dead body. And with soul and body reunited, Jesus is and always will be alive and well. He saw John on the island of Patmos. And he says to John as he's cowering in fear, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And as members of him, our King, we've been made alive together with Christ. Because of our union with him, we become spiritually alive. And that's the basis for our hope. You know something? The unbeliever is hopeless. He has nothing but a miserable future. And I hate to say it that way, but it's true. He has a sense of God's wrath. He has the terror of his own conscience. He has the dread of judgment coming. And those things are only the beginning. But the born-again believer has a living hope of everlasting life. And the basis for that is Christ's resurrection. And what's more, it assures us of our resurrection from the dead at the last day. And there's plenty of proof to substantiate it. You want proof? For many days, he appeared to those who had come up up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. In fact, for 40 days, for more than a month, he appeared and conversed with his apostles. And we have credible witnesses who testify to the veracity of his resurrection. There was no reason for them to lie. They had every reason to keep quiet. Because you see testifying to the resurrection of this crucified criminal would evoke a retaliation from the Jews. But they testified and they bore witness and they told the world what they saw. And both of these events, Christ's death and resurrection are fulfillments of prophecy. He cites several Old, Old Testament passages. From all eternity, God ordained the death and resurrection of his son. Don't you find it interesting that Paul says nothing here about Christ's teaching, his goodness, his miracles? All of his attention is focused on two grand events, the death and the resurrection. And those two elements of Christ's work were the substance of his preaching. I delivered to you, he says, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that, is the good news. God fulfilled his pledge to send the Messiah who obtained all the covenant benefits as Jeremiah predicted. And although men in their blind folly can reject and crucify him as they did, God could not be defeated and the resurrection from the dead proves it. So I think this morning as we close that we ought to rejoice in the rich security that we have in Christ for an eternal salvation. You know something, the historical reality of his death and resurrection solidifies our hope. Solomon tells us that when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. But God imputes to the believer the righteousness of his crucified and risen son? He could have demanded that of you and me, but instead he accepts it from Jesus. And then we receive Christ's righteousness by faith, which we've told in Sunday school is also his gift. The Holy Spirit gives it to us. And so clearly God has done everything and our salvation is of free grace and we have security, rich security. So today God has sent you the message of this salvation, and the question is, what do you say? You see, Paul wasn't content with simply rehearsing the achievements of Christ. He yearned for his brethren to be saved, and so he warned them against unbelief. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he quotes Habakkuk, who rebuked the scoffers of his own day to avoid what is threatened, receive salvation through Christ, and do so by faith. It's so simple. The offer of salvation is tendered. It's offered. The terms are incredibly gracious. And a person needs only trust in Jesus, and his sins will be forgiven, and he will be accepted by God. And so, in the parable Jesus told, the king says, Go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Invite them. Why would anybody refuse such an offer? It's completely irrational. And of many, it could be said, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. And by one's rejection of Jesus Christ, he forfeits all the blessings offered to him in the gospel. And you can't blame God for the sinner's ruin. The sinner himself rejects the offer. And great is the misery of those who reject the gracious offer. Jesus says, the master says, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. But the invitation goes out and a countless multitude will respond. And Paul did not say here that we brought the message, but Paul said, God sent the message. It is a great privilege to have the opportunity to hear and respond. You know something, not everybody in the world enjoys this privilege. There are places in the world, even today, they've never heard the gospel. They've never darkened the door of a church. They've never enjoyed the communion of saints. The great question this morning is what will we do with this fantastic opportunity? Because Paul says, now is the favorable time and now is the day of salvation. And may God enable all of us to respond favorably to this incredible (coughs) offer, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the offer, free offer of salvation in Christ. And we're grateful that you've opened our eyes, many of us, and we pray that if there be any who are blind in our midst, that you would open their eyes and that all might rejoice and be glad in the things of Christ. For we pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.